You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Turn to that psalm, Psalm 69. I think even as uh, we're singing that, I'm conscious that this is a, a messianic psalm that speaks about Jesus and uh, the thoughts of the Lord Jesus expressing those words, his own emotional agony. Um, we tend sometimes, I think, to think of Jesus as being somewhat stoical. Uh, you need to read, there's a wonderful essay by the American theologian B.B. Warfield, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, which is very revealing. I want to begin before we look at this, though, with an apology, because I did something last week that you should never do. So please learn from this mistake. I listened to a news report and took it as verbatim and as true. And uh, I was correctly picked up on it by somebody. So I went away and looked in more detail. And uh, I had quoted uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, as he had been reported. And when I looked at what he'd actually said, it was significantly different. Uh, He was quoted as doubting the existence of God, when in reality what he had said was he questioned where was God in the Paris Tragedy, and then he answered his own question, saying that he was there in the midst of the tears. And uh, it was just wrong of me to uh, quote him in the way that he had been quoted in the press, and I should have checked. And for that, I apologize. However, out of uh, that uh, came a couple of very, very interesting things and tie- very much tied in with this psalm. I wanted to say, by the way, Justin Welby is a believer. He, he's a, a good man in many ways, and we pray for him. But uh, Matthew Paris, who is not a believer, who is an atheist, uh, writes for the Times and the Spectator and so on, had an essay in the Spectator about this entitled, Why Should the Paris Atrocity Be More Theologically Troubling Than Any Other? And Paris has a good understanding of Christianity, sometimes much better than many Christians. And he basically said, if you believe in God and an all-powerful God, then what you do is you are able to understand that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And he gave this rather, actually, uh, marvelous atheist sermon. And at the end, he says this. I'd love to quote all of it, um, but he he suggests this. He says that... uh, The Archbishop struggles. Why? I can only conclude that as he has sometimes hinted, his belief in the very existence of a deity can falter. After all, if one starts from an absolute faith that there's a benevolent God, one must simply find ways to explain or discount apparently awkward evidence of which the problem of pain is an obvious example. If, on the other hand, one is unsure about the existence of God, one does not need to to discount troubling evidence against the theory, but approaches it with an open mind. I suspect that describes Archbishop Welby. If so, we should not reproach him for responding to an act of great wickedness as he did, although we might inquire whether it was really a good idea to be Archbishop of Canterbury. But what I must reproach him for is this. Paris is now close to home and once Welby's own home. But why should that make the atrocity any more philosophically troubling than a Lisbon earthquake centuries ago? I feel a righteous anger, listen to this, I feel a righteous anger 
This is an atheist speaking against people who renounce their faith because their aunt died of cancer. Other people's aunts die of cancer all the time. Why us? Why me? Why now? Should carry no more force than why others? Why then? The archbishop's response was doubtless human, but theologically shallow. Jesus in his agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Doubted himself, not God. I think that there is a great deal of truth in what is said there. And there's a, a depth in suffering that sometimes when we try to give answers, we can be very trite and shallow. So what we're going to look at uh, this morning is Psalm 69, which is just incredibly uh, deep. Uh, it's a profound psalm in so many ways. It tells us a lot about what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be human, and it tells us most of all about the God-man Christ Jesus. Now the summary of the psalm, and because of its length, we're not going to be able to go into it in enormous detail, but it helps to have a summary. The summary of the psalm is that David himself is experienced such hatred that it threatens his life. He feels that his life is under threat. The godly in the land are attacked, his family are estranged from him, and his faith is mocked. At one point, he even dreads that the Lord has turned from him. And he describes himself as heartbroken and friendless. It's not supposed to be like that if you're a Christian. You're supposed to be happy all the time. You're supposed to have no troubles. Jesus is supposed to bless you. And all your burdens have been taken away. Except that is not the experience of the Lord's people. We have moments of great joy. And we have moments of great suffering. And this psalm is about that. It is frequently quoted in the New Testament. Uh, in our uh, home group, we were looking at Psalm 110 this week. And Psalm 110, Psalm 22, and Psalm 69 are the three most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And all of them are quoted of Christ and of Christ's suffering. And that, I think, is not without significance. If you want to know the emotional life of Jesus, then uh, I suggest you read, as Bonhoeffer described them, the songbook or the prayers of Jesus, which are the Psalms, and especially these ones. This is a Psalm of Jesus. So I want to go through this, and I want to go through it all the time, bearing in mind three different levels. One, David's original context, which actually we don't really know. We, we don't know which specific incident in David's life this was referring to. But we know that David experienced uh, numerous troubles and difficulties. The other is us. Because as we hear of some of the things that happened, I am sure that some of this will hit home to you. And uh, as it did to me this week when I was looking at it, I was going, but Lord, that happened to me. And that happened to me. But then the most extraordinary and the most beautiful and the most wonderful thing of all, that looking at the storms in David's life and looking at the storms in your own life, there is a depth that comes in this because of Christ. So we'll go through it uh, like that. Let's uh, begin 
with the first, it's split, by the way, the psalm actually splits into five verses, so we'll look at uh, all five of those. I'm going to take one phrase out of each of the the five main stanzas, and the first is uh, verses one to four. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depth where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. In uh, many moons ago, many decades ago, I was a young teenage boy and I happened to be uh, in the Mississippi, literally not in the state of Mississippi, but in the mighty Mississippi River. And it's a huge river, a point's a mile wide. And I thought, ah, that's no problem, I'll swim it. But I couldn't swim, so it was a really stupid thing to do. So I started swimming across the Mississippi. I mean, how crazy was that? And uh, there's huge currents. And I started being swept away, and the people I was with thought I was joking. They thought I was mucking and I, mucking around and I went under the water and, you know, just that panic that fits you, you just gulp and gulp and gulp and the water, I don't know if you've ever had that. To me, drowning must be, you know, one of the most horrible, horrible ways um, to die. You panic, you can't breathe, you despair. Now, not in the literal sense, but in an emotional sense, in a psychological sense, in terms of his circumstances, this is what David is speaking of. And some of you will know a little bit about what that is like, if, if you suffer from panic attacks at all. It, it, it's an irrational thing. that You're just suddenly overwhelmed by things. But I think here it's speaking not so much of panic attacks, but just a continuing building up of circumstances that, you know, the first thing happens... It's rough, I can handle it. Second thing happens, it's really rough. But I'm still standing. You know the song, I'm still standing, I'm still standing. But this is where you're not standing anymore. The third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth thing happens. And you're knocked over. And you're in the waters. And the, you, you, you reach, if you like, for the, the sandbank. And it's not there. There's just nothing there. And you drown. You're drowning in all the trouble that is there. There is no foothold, he says, where there is no foothold. See, it's easy. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But what if, what if you do, you, you're not standing on Christ? What if you don't feel Christ? What if you're not aware of Christ? And he's exhausted. Verse 3, I'm worn out calling for help. He prayed so much, his throat went dry. You know, sometimes you go Um, to a concert or a party or something. Some of you will anyway. Um, My daughter was celebrating her birthday and on uh, Tuesday I was speaking to her. You've got a cold. No, it's just been shouting too much. You've been enjoying yourself. You've You've become hoarse and dry. Well, here it's not because of shouting for joy. It's because of crying to God. Lord, where are you? Lord, what are you doing? And what's happening? And he he's prayed so much that his throat is dry. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Because that's what real faith is. It's not when we do not see, it's when we are drowning. We pray. 
There are many enemies, more than the hairs of his head. And there, it's particularly the shame. It's not so much that he's being threatened with death. It's just the shame. Calvin comments that some would die rather than face shame. But people are mocking, people are abusing, people are ridiculing. And in verse 4, there is a possibility there. I'm forced to restore what I did not steal. But uh, this is probably around the time of seeking to build the temple, or at least build up his kingdom. And people are accusing him of financial malpractice. And he's having to return stuff that he didn't steal. So he's been accused of being a crook. The shame and the embarrassment. Now what amazes me about this is that some of us at some point in our lives will have experienced something of this. I doubt that many of us, you may have, but I doubt that many of us have experienced it to this extent and this depth. But for me, the amazing thing about this is, this is Jesus. In the upper room, Jesus quotes these verses to explain to the disciples he's going to the cross because there are people who hate him. It's the removal of the solid rock on which he stood because when Jesus was suffering, what happened? He was baptized with the Holy Spirit and the Father came to him. This is my son whom I love. When he was in agony, this is my son whom I love. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the angels were sent to strengthen him. But on the cross, at the moment of his death, suddenly he's drowning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is no rock on which to stand. He's sinking. He's drowning in the mire. The exhaustion, the false accusations, the dry throat, they gave me vinegar. The dry throat because of what he went through. Verses 5 onwards. You know the second stanza, my folly, O God, my guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. My guilt is not hidden from you. You, God, know my folly. It's possible that David here is using irony, that he's saying, I'm not guilty of what they've accused me of. I paid back what I didn't have to pay back. But his concern particularly is for the people of God, because when a Christian is accused, Mud sticks to the whole body. And there is trouble within his own family. Verse 8, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. His brothers and sisters, in effect, disown him. And in verses 10 to 12, his religious practices are deemed false. The ordinary people, the drunkards, and the rulers, those who sit at the gate, accuse him of being a hypocrite. John 2.13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. 
So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. David was very concerned for the reputation of God and for his people. And Christ, of course, was the same. Uh, verse 9, where it says, for zeal for your house consumes me, uh, is what, what's really being said, the insults of those who insult you fall on me, is that attacking David was really an attack on God. That's quite an audacious statement. Because there aren't that many people, there are some, there are some people who directly and, and outrightly will explicitly blaspheme and assault God and attack God. But the more normal means is for them to attack his people. And, of course, people will deny that that's what they're doing. But they are. Romans 15, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. In other words, what Paul is telling the Roman Christians is just as they insulted Jesus, so they're going to insult you. And this is what Psalm 16, Psalm 69 says, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Sometimes when you're mocked for being a Christian, sometimes when you're gossiped about for being a Christian, Sometimes when people pick on your faults and then identify them with Christ, what you need to remember is this. It actually isn't about you. They're doing it because they ultimately hate God, not because they hate you. They hate God and they hate Jesus. The trouble is we far too often as Christians have this idea. We have far too good an idea of, of people in general thinking, well, um, most people are basically good. And if they're angry at me, then it's because of me and they can't be angry at Jesus. Actually, they can be angry at Jesus because the very purity and holiness of Jesus is the very thing that condemns them. You don't condemn them, though ironically, the better you are, the more likely you are to be insulted. The closer you draw to Christ, the more likely you are to be treated in the way that they treated Christ. We live in this bizarre world where people go, well, I don't really like the church much, but Jesus is okay. They haven't a clue what they're talking about. They despise Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Their own makey up Jesus in their head is fine, but that's like Santa Claus. It doesn't exist. The real Jesus they hate. If they have hated me, says Jesus, they will hate you also. Sometimes I wonder where our zeal is, because we don't like the word zeal, do we? I mean, Islamic terrorists are zealous, aren't they? And there are people who are zealous for wrong things. But does that mean we shouldn't be zealous for Jesus Christ and for the glory of God? Sometimes I think, let me put it another way. You love your mother. And someone comes and insults your mother. You just say, ah, well, I can live with that. What does it really matter? We can cope. It's just names. You're very, very, very upset. When people insult and mock Jesus Christ, and I'm speaking here to those of you who are Christians, does it hurt you? Does it wound you? Does it cause you to cry out? Well, 
if it doesn't, I'm asking, how much do we reflect Christ? Zeal for your house consumes me. When we are zealous for God's people, other people will be zealous to attack us. I love again what Calvin says. He says, if we are hated by the world for making a public confession of the faith, a thing which we are to expect, it being evident from observation that the wicked ordinarily are never more fierce than when they assault the truth of God and the true religion, we have ground to entertain double confidence. So someone stuck the boot into you because you profess to be a Christian and because of your Christianity, instead of you beating yourself up about that, maybe it's a reason to be confident. Why do they hate you? I think so often it's because of Christ. Christ suffered for us. Christ bore our shame. But that doesn't mean that we won't share to some degree in his suffering. In fact, Paul speaks about that. And you know what I love about this as well? is uh, you and I, we like the church, okay? And at times we love being in the church and part of it. And at times we genuinely do feel a love. But a zeal for God's church? How many of us are there? To be honest, if people in the church screw up, we kind of say, I'm out of here, I'm done, I'm finished. I've had enough. It doesn't take much for us to turn against one another. But I see Jesus here and I see the zeal for his people and I see this compassion and this fierce love. And Jesus is saying to us, to his people, we sit at his table and he's saying, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. I'm not going to let you go. Zeal for your house consumes me. And it did consume him. Jesus was consumed because he loved his people. And then verse 13, but I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. Out of the goodness of your love. What do you do with the mire and the flood and the deep waters? You plead the character of God. You cannot deal with the circumstances. You cannot deal with the people around you. You cannot deal with those who hate you. You cannot deal with your own sin. You cannot rely on your own righteousness. All that you can do is plead the character of God, which is why, by the way, the devil keeps wanting to come and get you to doubt the goodness of God. Far more than he wants you to doubt the existence, he wants you to doubt the goodness of God. Because if you doubt the goodness, you won't plead the goodness. So verse 13 speaks of God's favor, God's love, and God's salvation. Come and rescue me. Come and redeem me. Coming back to the language of the kinsman redeemer. Take this cup from me. I think the story of Gethsemane is, for me, the... The, the glass through which I look at 
the whole cross about what it meant to Christ. Because when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he took his three closest friends, and when they fell asleep, and he prayed, and he prayed, remember? Psalm 69, parched voice. Jesus wasn't saying his prayers. He wasn't going through a ritual. He was pleading with his father. And he pleads, Father, take this cup from me, if it is possible. But if it is not, Let your will be done. And the cup was the anger against the injustice. The cup was the punishment for sin. The cup was the thing that would cause us to drown in our own guilt. And Jesus takes these deep, deep, deep waters and he plunges right in. There's a song Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. That's what we do when we come this morning, that no matter how deep and how lonely and how accursed and how shame-filled you are, there's someone who's gone deeper still. You know Verse, the fourth stanza, you know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. This is a prayer. A prayer that we're uncomfortable with. They've acted in spite. They've brought about exhaustion. And the prayer simply says, let them suffer what they have done. Let there be justice. In verse 9, they set themselves against God. And in, verse, uh, in that last verse there, verse 28, let God set him against them eternally. Because that's what hell is. Now, there's a problem here. Because people say, is this Christ-like? Well, yes, it is. Matthew 25, 41, on the day of judgment, Jesus says, depart from me, you cursed. Revelation 6, verses 15 to 17, a day will come when they will flee from the wrath of the Lamb. Please don't take away, don't don't take God and say, here's God and he's angry and here's Jesus and he's gentle and kind because there is such a thing as the wrath of the Lamb because he's got to be right righteously anger against sin is it not a great thing that god will deal with evil well yes but what did jesus do on the cross this curse which is a just curse he took and that's why he could pray father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing but he took the curse don't think that just by jesus praying forgive that that's it that's it all done it's all sorted What happens was when when he prays, Father, forgive, what he's doing is he's taking this justice that's right 
upon himself the reproach, the shame, the dishonor. Scorn has broken my heart. It's the Son of God who's saying this. The Son of God whose heart was broken. And why was his heart broken? Because he took the justice that my sin and your sin deserved. He took it all upon himself so that our hearts might be healed. His heart was broken. If you dare to make light of sin, you don't understand the cross. If you dare to excuse sin in the name of Jesus Christ, you do not understand what Jesus actually did for you. You cannot grasp the love of Christ until you realize that he loved you so much that his heart was broken for you. It is an extraordinary depth. For those of you who've been through the experience of feeling that you're drowning, to know that Christ suffered more and it was for you is just actually wonderful. And that's why it ends. I'm in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with his horns and hoofs. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in him. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there. The pain is ongoing, but so is the praise. The most desperate of prayers will still end in doxology. That verse, verse 31, about horns and hoofs, um, I think it's just simply saying this, praise is better than sacrifice. See, some of you come to worship, and you may even come to the Lord's table, and what you've got in your mind is you're saying, I'm going to recommit myself to God, I'm going to give myself to God, I'm going to do this, I'm going to stop doing this, and do you know, that's not wrong, that's admirable in some ways. But you're missing the biggest thing of all. You're missing a real trick. Uh, You're missing the heart of the matter. You are going to come and you are going to hear what God has done for you. And then anything that you offer him will appear so trivial in comparison. You're not going to come and say, Lord, I'm going to give you this sacrifice and then that you'll be good to me. You're going to come and Jesus says to you, this is the sacrifice. And, and you're going to say, what, what can I do? And the answer is nothing. You can praise him for what he has done. And you can be freed from your guilt. And you can be freed from your sin. And you can, as he lifts you out of the deep waters, you can rejoice that he was there. Verse 33, I think. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. It's, it's literally, he does not despise his own that are in bonds. His people, God sees his people and we're chained. I know we sing, my chains fell off, my heart was free. And that's true. 
But admit it, come on, you and I, we so easily drift back into captivity. We so easily drift back into despair. But God loves and does not despise his captive people. Even now, he looks upon you and he sees you in your sin. He sees you in the consequences of that sin. He sees you in your despair and in your brokenness. He sees you in your circumstances where wave after wave after wave comes upon you. And he doesn't despise you. It's not God going, right, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. God sees and knows and loves. And in that sense, Justin Welby was right. Where was God in Paris in the midst of the tears? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you see, as verse 36 puts it, the children of his servants will inherit it and those who love his name will dwell there. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church and the house of God. Calvin says there's no reason to fear that the building of the spiritual temple in which the celestial power of God has been manifested will ever fall into ruins. I heard a man giving a sermon in a large church uh, last week, uh, saw it online, in which he said, unless we do this, unless we bomb Syria, then Islam will take over and destroy us. And I thought, don't you know God? What a pathetic thing to say. Nothing. The gates of hell, never mind some crazy fundamentalist Islamic terrorists. They're not going to destroy the church. Nothing will destroy the church. Our sin, which is far worse, won't destroy the church. Those who love his name will dwell there. And that's why, how will I put it? That's why those of us who are Christians who always want to be in the shallows, you know, we don't want the deep stuff because the deep stuff really does mean hurt. We don't want the deep stuff because we're scared and we don't want to be afraid. But that's why when the Lord takes us through deep waters, it is an extraordinary boost to our faith in Christ. The psalmist says the deep calls unto deep. Out of the depths, William Cowper was a depressive. Read his poetry. Do you know, I think in the depths of his despair, he knew more of Christ than I, than I ever will on this earth. I think it's just extraordinary when you read that. Deep calls to deep. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're drowning, and that things don't make sense, and that your circumstances are just not great. And you, you're saying, God, where are you in all of this? It's not that God's up there and you're down in the depths. It's that Christ is deeper than you have gone or will ever go. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And that is an enormous comfort for those of us who are believers. And for those of you who are not believers, do you know what I honestly think? I honestly feel such a deep, deep sorrow for you because you've got nothing on which to stand. When the storm comes, you've got nothing. And you need Christ. You, you need his love. You need his forgiveness. 
Because I know this as a Christian, that no matter what happens, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. No matter what happens, Christ paid for it all. And Christ is the one who will guide and keep and help and protect. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to us. Heal the broken hearts of your people. Heal the wounds. Wound those who are proud and arrogant and think they do not need you. Wound that they may be healed. And help us to see that out of the enormous agony of Gethsemane and Calvary, that you have paid for everything, that we might be free and that we might be whole and that we might be healed. In your name, amen. We're going to finish by singing, um, well, we're not going to finish because we're going to have communion, but before communion we're going to um, sing uh, Jesus paid it all. And uh, maybe John, you could tell the Sunday school kids to come back through. And then uh, we'll have the communion. And if you're a visitor, that doesn't uh, take long. I'll explain it uh, after we've sung. And then we'll have just one more song to finish. But let's stand and sing. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Now, for the communion, we invite those who are believers in Jesus, who are members in good standing in another church, not to be a member in this church, but you, you trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the bread and the wine comes round, please uh, take it. If you're not yet a believer, please just pass it on. Uh, if you're up in the balcony and you'd like to take communion, can I ask you to uh, come down and just join with us here if, if you don't wish to, uh, just remain where you are. Uh, I want to uh, read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Y- using this image of the, the waters and the deep waters, to me this is like Christ standing in the shallows with the disciples saying, I'm going to go in deep. And this is how you remember. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did indeed pay it all. And that this bread speaks of your broken body that we might have whole bodies, whole minds, whole hearts, whole spirits. And that this wine speaks of your shed blood, that we might be cleansed and forgiven, and that instead of eternal death, we might have eternal life. We bless you for it, and as we eat and drink together, may we do so recognizing one another as brothers and sisters, forgiving one another, and may we also do so recognizing that in the midst of a broken world as broken people you are the the one who brings healing in your name amen now the elders will pass around the bread just uh, take it and uh, eat and then they'll do the same with the wine
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.